Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we are continuing in point number one in our new series entitled Important Prophecy Terms. And we are looking at seven sets, two each, uh, seven sets of prophetic terms that uh, I think are very important to help us understand the overall flow of prophecy and to make sure that when we see things like Son of God, Son of Man, Day of Christ, Day of the Lord, Gospel of the Kingdom, Gospel of Grace, what do we mean? What do we understand those terms to mean? Because sometimes we put them together and uh, we can be misled, misunderstand, and sometimes we uh, give them the wrong understanding as individual terms. And before we get into the, the overview of the 30 prophetic events that uh, are yet to happen between now and, and uh, eternity, which you find at the end of the book of Revelation, uh, as I was preparing that uh, for our next series, uh, I came to the realization we needed to have a better understanding for some of these um, prophecy terms. So I've selected seven sets of terms, and we're going through those, and we're in point number one, or term set number one, and that's looking at the the difference between the Son of God and the Son of Man. And as we've said numerous times before, yes, we are talking about the same individual. We are talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But there are those many people in the world throughout uh, the Bible and today throughout the world that uh, see Jesus as nothing more than the Son of a man. He was a good man born to uh, Mary and Joseph as that story book, the Bible, as they consider it, the storybook, the Bible tells us, and that he probably did live, you know, long time ago. And he was a good man. I understand he was a prophet and so forth, but the people didn't like him and they killed him. And he's, uh, he's just like all the other prophets. As a matter of fact, that's what Israel determined him to be as well. And we have been over those scriptures. We'll be over them again as we get into the specifics of the Son of Man. But we are looking at the Son of God right now, and we have been for several programs. And the background of the Son of God, the fact that there are other people that are also referred to as sons of God, and those that were those uh, are those that were directly created by God. And remember, that was Adam. Those are the angels as well, and it's the church. Yes, you, because the Bible tells us that the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into you, and you are a new creation in God, and no one else did that but God. So you are referred to in the Bible as sons, and therefore sons and daughters uh, of the living God. And that's that's an awesome thing. And that requires us to take some pause 
about our lives, when we come to that realization, and over and over, when Paul and the other writers say, walk worthy because of your calling, uh, you think about that, that you are a new creation in God. So we have uh, transitioned in uh, our study of uh, the term, the Son of God, into the point now where we are looking to see how it's used in, uh, in the New Testament and to see um, a little bit about some, in some cases, we're going to see the differentiation between the Son of God and Son of Man, but mostly the emphasis is going to be on the Son of God because that's how he was portrayed uh, historically at his birth to, uh, to Mary. Uh, we see uh, through the angel, we see the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the beginning, all referring to Jesus as the Son of God. And of course, that to you and me, that's exactly what he is. So we, we transition now, and in our last program, we were in the book of First John, First John, and the realization that John, um, who wrote the Gospel John, also wrote First, Second, Third John, and also wrote Revelation. So it makes him the second most prolific writer of the New Testament. And one of the, the, the greatest writers, his books, I believe, are some of the most important. Obviously, the revelation of Jesus in the book of Revelation. But if you want to explain somebody to somebody about Jesus, uh, oftentimes I send them to the book of John. And as they develop as a Christian, then you want to get them into 1 John, particularly 1 John. And we'll get into a little bit of 2 John, perhaps today, uh, to see the depth of his writings here, but you can very clearly see in 1 John, uh, which is where we're going. Actually, let's go back and we're going to review 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses um, 7 and 8. You can see the depth of um, what John is trying to get across to a Christian and how important it is to walk worthy. And in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, we go down to verses 7 and 8. And we see it, uh, the writing in, in verse 7, little children. And you can see how he's got that endearment aspect when he's talking about to the brethren, to the believers, to the church. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And we know uh, in part that has already happened because when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that he overcame the greatest power, and that's sin, or rather that's death due to sin. So Jesus was the first fruits to show the church what would happen. And of course, we will come along behind Jesus uh, at the rapture, for sure. So at the rapture of the church, when Jesus brings the spirits down of those who have died in Christ, the spirit and the body will be matched up, and we will uh, see Christ firsthand, face to face, and we will have eternal life. So we have overcome the great penalty of sin, which is eternal death. And that came through the fall in the garden, through Satan, uh, also known as the devil. So Jesus, by, by rising from the grave on that third glorious day after his crucifixion, started the work of destroying 
the works of the devil. And of course, we know that uh, the devil will be thrown into the pit for a thousand years once Jesus comes back the second time to the earth. Then, of course, follows the uh, the rapture, because remember, at the rapture, Jesus doesn't come down to the earth. He only comes down in the sky, and we go up to meet him. If if we have died already, then our, our bodies will rise up out of the grave. If we're alive when Jesus comes back, then we will merely be translated alive, and our, our bodies will be literally changed uh, into glorified bodies as we go up to meet Christ and then go on with him to heaven, to the Bema seat. And then, of course, at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Satan comes back out of the pit, he will then be judged completely by Christ, and he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And at that point, all the works of the devil would have been totally destroyed, totally done away with, because when the devil and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, as we read at the end of Revelation, then death is gone. There is no more death, and that's the ultimate that's the ultimate point, the ultimate power, if you will, of Satan. So today, you have the three components of Satan. You have the, the presence of Satan, you have the power of Satan, and you have the penalty, the penalty of Satan. When Christ resurrected, he removed the penalty, because now, um, a lot of times you'll see in the New Testament, uh, when, when a believer dies, it says they've, they've gone to sleep. Because when you sleep, you arise from your sleep to consciousness. And that is a, another way of looking at the rapture, another way of looking at the rapture. So we are not eternally uh, separated from God. We're not eternally dead or what they call the second death. We're never, we're never totally dead because everyone who ever lived from Adam to the last person before eternity starts is going to be resurrected at some point, and it's either going to be to righteousness or it's going to be eternal or to eternal separation from God. And when you're eternally separated from God, that's the second death. But in reality, there is a consciousness that uh, is, has existed since Adam. And when they go to Hades, which is basically, for lack of a better term, a place of holding, a temporary place of holding, because when the great white throne judgment happens, all those people that are in Hades on that um, unrighteous, tormented side, where you remember the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man was on the side that was tormented, and he was trying to get someone to just drop a drop of water on his lips. He was in such torment. That still exists today, and it will until the great white throne judgment. And then all of those people will be taken out of Hades as well as all those that are living, and they will be judged at the great white throne judgment. So it's going to be a terrible time, and the result of that is going to be eternal separation from God, which is eternal torment. So it's not like you just disappear and are forgotten forever. No, there will be an existence forever for everyone. We're either going to exist forever with Jesus or we're going to exist forever in the lake of fire. So a horrible thing to even contemplate uh, in not knowing Jesus and the, the penalty of not knowing Jesus. So we see that in 1 John chapter 3 when it says the Son of God, uh, his main purpose was to destroy the works of the devil. 
destroy the works of the devil. So let's move on in 1 John. It's a wonderful book, uh, and we see the Son of God mentioned all through it. So let's go on, and let's look at chapter 4. So we go from 1 John chapter 3 over to 1 John chapter 4, and let's look at verse 15. And here's a rather pointed statement. Verse 15 of 1 John chapter 4, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him, and he in God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And you can imagine again, as we've done a, a few times before here, when we're seeing these emphatic statements of truth about the Son of God, how awkward it would be if you in, uh, took out the word God and put man in there. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of Man. You can see, I, I hope you can see that it just completely changes it from one, one particular perspective to a totally opposite perspective. You're basically saying that I need to profess a belief in and turn my life over to a man that was born of another man and woman coming together is basically what we're we're trying to understand here if we were to to replace God with man here. So whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we're continuing on. We've been in 1 John chapter 3. We're now in 1 John chapter 4. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5. You just see how rich it is here um, in terms of understanding the Son of God. And we look at uh, 1 John chapter 5, and we look at verse 5. 1 John 5, verse 5. Whoever is the one, who is the one, rather, who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we see in conjunction with what we saw in 1 John chapter 4, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him, and he in God. And then we learn in 1 John chapter 5 that the one who overcomes the world is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, when you go through a, uh, a reading or a study of the seven churches that we find in the first um, three chapters, or chapter 2, chapter 3 of Revelation, and each time it talks about overcoming, overcomers. And you have to, you know, you ask yourself as you go through there, if you read that just uh, in isolation, just those, you wonder, well, who are these overcomers? I'm assuming it's me, but I don't understand exactly what that means. Well, when I get into those, whenever I'm teaching Sunday school or, or uh, precept studies, whatever, and we get into that revelation and we talk about overcomers, I say, okay, let's stop right here. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5 and let's see who these overcomers are. Because uh, 1 John chapter 5, in fact, you can go to verse 4 to start. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And by the way, uh, just by uh, context as we're looking at that, look at what we read there in verse 4. It says, For whatever is born of God, 
And remember, Jesus in this context is the Son of God, born of God. Abraham, or Abraham, Adam was born directly of God. The angels were created by God. And here, the church is a, cre- a direct creation of God. So technically born of God, if you will. So back to my point earlier about us being sons and daughters of the living God. That's uh, the understanding of it is because we are direct creations through the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God in our lives. But he who overcomes the world uh, is so because he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Then we go on further down in in, uh, chapter 5 here of 1 John, and let's look at some more verses. We want to look at 11 through 13, 11 through 13. So 1 John chapter 5, 11 through 13. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's one of the most precious verses in all the Bible right there. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have been saved because you have read the words that have been written. And John's talking about the Holy Spirit working through the 40 authors of the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament when it starts revealing the specifics about the Son of God, that if you believe in the name, as as we've been reading through 1 John 3, 4, and 5, That if you believe, if you profess the name of uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, you may know that you have eternal life. And how precious is that? And you know, again, can you imagine reading that passage and putting the term man in there instead of God? In fact, I think he even makes the point even clear here because if you go to verse 11 and finish out that verse and it says, this life is in his Son, if you take that out of context, you might able to you might actually say, well, that could be the Son of Man, because they're one and the same. Well, no, he clarifies it by adding God in the second uh, the second verse there, verse twelve. The Son has life; he does not have the Son of God if he doesn't if he doesn't have life if he doesn't have the Son of God. And how important is that? And then to finish out here in First John. Before we move over to our Q&A, let's look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So it's the Son of God has come, and we, if we believe that, then we have Uh, an assurance that we have eternal life. So we're going to continue that, um, and we're actually going to go to 2 John in our next program, uh, teaching portion of the program, but we want to move over to our Q&A now, uh, as we do every program, and we want to continue with a question that was asked uh, by Rich in Indian Springs that we've been working on for quite a while, and as you recall, we've kind of 
jokingly referred to this as a uh, mini teaching series on the Holy Spirit and on the triune Godhead in general and how the triune Godhead Godhead has interacted with man all the way from from uh, Genesis on and we want to talk about revelation because that's that's Rich's question he wants to know if the Holy Spirit has been removed uh, at the be- before the beginning of the tribulation because it says that the restrainer of evil um, the Holy Spirit which is described in second Thessalonians chapter 2, if he's been removed, the church has been removed, then how can the tribulation saints of Revelation 20, verse 4, be saved during the tribulation? Because we know matter-of-factly that people are saved during the tribulation. It's very difficult, and most of them will die um, for professing Jesus, but nevertheless, they will be saved and will live eternally with Christ just as the church does. And we went through, um, the, we're going through the triune Godhead, and we've looked at God the Father and realized that God the Father cannot directly interact with man because man is in his fallen sinful state. And we showed where God interacted with man in the, the perfect state at the beginning of Genesis. And then we'll show, we showed that he interacts with man in his perfect state at the end of the Bible when the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and God will actually be among men again in their sinless state. But in the meantime, God interacts through the triune Godhead in different ways, depending on where you are in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, um, and then within the New Testament, the tribulation period, because there's a difference there that we're going to get into. So in our last several programs, we showed how the second part of the triune Godhead, Jesus, in his pre-incarnate form. And when I say pre-incarnate, it's pre-flesh. Carne is flesh. And he, when he came to the earth at his first coming 2,000 years ago, he came in the flesh. But before he came in the flesh, he came as what is, we found out through several verses in the Old Testament in Genesis and Numbers and in Joshua that he came as the angel of the Lord. And particularly in Genesis 18 and 19, when we were talking about the three men who came uh, to Abram uh, when he was in Canaan, three men came to him and we found out that two of the men were angels And they were identified as such as men and then as angels. But the third one was referred to as the Lord and then later referred to as the angel of the Lord. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ physically standing in front of men and interacting with them. Uh, It's not the, the, it's not father God. It's the, um, aspect of God, if you will, and and I'm sure theologians have struggled for centuries trying to describe exactly the attributes and how they interact with the triune Godhead. You know, how can three, how can one be three and three be one? But they are because they, it's God manifesting himself in different ways to man. Um, Second part of the triune Godhead, Jesus as the pre-incarnate Christ And then we know that Jesus came to the earth in form of flesh, flesh and blood man, and interacted for 33 um, and a half years. 
with um, man. And then when he left, he said, I'm not leaving you orphans. That's in John, the book of John. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to, the, the father is going to bring the helper and the helper is described as the Holy Spirit. So now what we want to do, because this really brings us to the essence of what Rich is asking, is about the the uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit can appear to be taking at, be taken off the earth when the church is removed because the Holy Spirit indwells the church and never leaves the church, then how can he interact with the saints in Revelation 20, verse 4, to have them saved. So let's now start looking specifically at the uh, the Holy Spirit. And let's, let's consider three groups that are associated with the period of time that Rich brings up in his question, and that's called the tribulation. This is a seven-year period of time that the, the uh, Bible talks a lot about, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's also referred to as um, Daniel's 70th week. It's a period of seven years at the end when ultimately, according to Daniel's prophecy, Israel is going to be brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because that's the only way for anyone to be saved. Even though God has a separate plan for Israel and a separate plan for the church, they both have to recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in order to be saved. And I, I emphasize that because there are teachings out there that uh, say that Israel is going to be saved by another means. It's called a dual covenant. There's one covenant for the church and another covenant for Israel. Well, there are when you get into the covenants, there are covenants that deal directly with Israel. But the one that deals with salvation is the same covenant for both. And we definitely never want to... Um, um, allow that to be misunderstood. Only through the blood of Jesus Christ can anyone ever uh, have eternal life and um, be in the presence of Father God. Because you have to be um, rem- your your sins have to be removed before you can be in the presence of Father God. So let's consider the three groups that are involved in this or uh, associated with and around the seven year tribulation and to see how the Holy Spirit deals with each one of these three groups. The three groups are the church, and then there's going to be the Gentiles and the Jews that go through the tribulation, that terrible time of the tribulation. And let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and just let me show you very quickly that the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul, lists these three groups. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we want to look at verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, it says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So that's what we're going to be talking about uh, in our next Q&A portion as we get into looking at the Holy Spirit and how he interacts with these three groups as we uh, move towards answering Rich's question can the tribulation saints be saved, and how if the church is removed? Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. 
Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.